this week I found myself again turning to the letter of James, that highly practical book for Christian living. And we're going to read the first 18 verses of chapter 1, and we're going to focus just on verses 13 to 15, which deals with, a fa- with facing the trials of temptation. So James 1, the first 18 verses. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. So far the reading. We're concentrating on verses 13 to 15, facing the trial of temptation. The devil made me do it. That was Eve's excuse, wasn't it? She may have called him the serpent, but that's, that's what she really said. The devil made me do it. He was the one who deceived me, and I ate Even at the dawn of time, it seems that the human race's national sport was called passing the buck. And lest we think otherwise, good old Adam didn't do much better. Not only did he try to pass the buck to Eve, he also went on to blame God. This woman, God, which you gave me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. Passing the blame to someone else and being slow to take responsibility is a result of our fallen nature. When that cricketer that Australians idolise, I'd I'd even say venerate Shane Warne, 
when he was caught out taking a banned diet pill, did he take responsibility? No. Basically, he said, my mommy gave me the pills. Passing the blame is particularly popular when it comes to sin, no matter what that sin might be. Like Adam, some even try to blame God when things go wrong or when they yield to a particular sin. And it appears that some of the believers to whom James was, James was writing had fallen prey to this attitude of, of blaming God for tempting them. And like a loving pastor should do, James points out their error. He reminds them that temptation doesn't come from God, but from within. He also points out to them that succumbing to temptation is sin. Or to put it another way, he highlights how we are contaminated by temptation and also what the consequences are of submitting to temptation. And we'll look at these two aspects first and then we'll ask the question, so what is the cure? In short, we're going to look at three C's. The contamination in verses 13 and 14, the consequence in verse 15, and then we'll look at the cure. Contamination, consequence and cure. And we'll start with verses 13 to 14. But we look back first at verse 1. Verse 1 points out that the letter of James was addressed to believers who had been scattered amongst the pagan nations. Many of them had lost most or all of their possessions. Many were subject to, to persecution and to discrimination. So James wrote to them to encourage them, to pastorally help them to cope, and to help them deal with the practical issues that they were facing, the practical issues that flowed from the trials that they were facing. In the first 12 verses, he focused on things that affect the believer from the outside, external things like afflictions, personal tragedies, differences in economic status. Verse 12 itself would have been hugely comforting for it assures those believers that if they remain steadfast under the various trials that they were facing, they would receive the crown of life that God promises to those who love him. But you know, it wasn't just external influences or external factors that affected these believers. From the context of the first chapter, it appears that at least some of these scattered Christians thought that their troubles came from God, that it was God who was tempting them. Now, this isn't altogether strange given that they'd settled among pagan nations who believed in, in fickle and impulsive gods. But our text shows that James knew better. He knew that, that some trials come not from outside things, but from within. So he goes on to remind his fellow believers of the heart of the matter, namely that the origin of temptation comes from their own sinful nature and not from God. This is what he says in the first part of verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Perhaps if he wrote this today, James would have said, don't try to pass the buck when you're tempted. Don't blame God. It comes from within. And friends, to be sure, to be sure we need to listen to this warning today as well. We need to listen to this instruction. For it isn't just some of these dispersed believers or the first century Christians who blamed God when they fell into temptation. Believers throughout the centuries have done the same. 
a common delusion amongst Christians is to say that, well, since God ordains everything, he has ordained that we succumb to sin. In this sense, it's the same as saying that we should sin more so that we can have more grace. It's a delusion. Some also blame God for putting them in a situation that's too difficult for them. How often have we heard that? The poet Robert Burns goes so far as to claim that God formed us with such strong and wild passions that we can't do anything except to yield to them. He also said that the light that leads astray is the light from heaven. That's, how's that about taking responsibility? That's, that's really talking about not taking responsibilities. Talk about trying to make God responsible for your own sins. Burns would probably have done well to listen to old King Solomon who said, when a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. Friends, when we sin, when we fall into temptation, our hearts rage against God and we are apt to blame him. We might want to blame his sovereignty. In other words, we blame predestination. We might want to blame the the way that he made us. We might want to blame him for the things that he's put on our paths or our circumstances in life. But, says James, don't blame God when you are being tempted in one way or another. And without pausing, he, he goes on, he starts explaining exactly why blaming God is really an exercise in your futility. And I have to say, it's a pretty darn good reason as the second half of verse 13 tells us. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. We're talking about the very nature of God here. He's holy, he's perfect, he's the exact opposite of evil. He is light, and in him there is no darkness. And because God is perfectly good, he can never do evil, and he can never be tempted And the word that James uses here occurs only here in the Bible. It has the sense of being unable to be tempted. God is untemptable, if you like. Because he is holy, he will not violate the will of his creatures to persuade them to tempt them or to commit evil. He doesn't do that. He will not violate his will, the will of his creatures, to persuade them to do evil. He's unable to be tempted. And he himself never, never tempts anyone. Now, perhaps you're asking, why then in the Lord's Prayer do we pray, lead us not into temptation? I'm not going to ask anyone if you remember the sermon almost three years ago on this part of the Lord's Prayer. But perhaps you will remember that what we are asking God to do is to not allow us to be overpowered by temptation to such an extent that we will sin. It doesn't have anything to do with God doing any tempting. It's inconceivable that a pure and holy God would desire evil to be brought out in any of his creatures. So where does temptation then come from if it doesn't come from God? James tells us, after having so powerfully defending the nature and the character of God, the Apostle James vividly describes the source of temptation. 
Temptation, he says, comes from within. The contamination comes from within. Temptation originates within us because of our sinful nature. Listen again to how he puts it in verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Now the words that he uses here come from the world of hunting and and fishing. The word lure suggests a fish being tempted onto a hook before being drawn out of the water. And entice suggests attracting prey with a, a, to a trap with a bait. He uses these two words to highlight different aspects of the same action. You see, a person's evil desire is like a hook with appealing bait, enticing its prey to a trap and then dragging it away. And this applies to each person, James says. Not just some, not just me, not just you, but everyone. So he's talking here about individual responsibility. Sin lurks within each one of us. It's crouching within us, as God says to Cain. Temptation doesn't come from God. It comes when we are lured and enticed by our own desires. Temptation drags us away because it distracts us from the true pleasures to which we are called by the Lord. Temptation entices us because it draws us to the sham pleasures pleasures of sin. The sham pleasures of sin by painting them in a false light, a good light. Temptation may be attractive. Temptation may be appealing. But it is deceptive. And while temptation itself is not sinful, listening to its siren call and not persevering in that trial draws us into sin. I say it again, sin itse- uh, sorry, temptation itself is not sinful, but listening to the siren call and not persevering in that trial draws us and lures us into sin. That's the contamination of temptation. And like all contamination, it comes with consequences, which we see in verse 15. Listen to what verse 15 says. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Using the language of conception, giving birth, maturing, and finally giving birth to death, James is warning his readers of the close link between temptation, sin, and death. By willingly allowing temptation a foothold, it lingers on, it continues on. Then that contamination spreads. The illness of disobedience to the will of God sets in. That's the consequence. The ultimate result is that it's not the crown of, of life that belongs to those who love God, but death. Before we go further, though, we need to ask, what this temptation is that James is speaking about. To what does it refer? What type of temptation is he talking about? Many have taken this to refer only to sexual sin, and of course it does to refer to that too. And we'll look at a, a biblical in- illustration of that shortly. But temptation is much more than that. This being lured and enticed refers to any sin, any sin that draws us from God's way. We can be enticed by money or lured 
by power, by popularity, by popular acclaim or, or glory or the need to be cheered on by others. We can be tempted and enticed by all of those things. In the year 2000, three young men faced an inquiry. One was the highly respected captain of the South African cricket team. The others were his teammates and they'd all been caught cheating. His two teammates had taken part in that cheating but they blamed their captain for getting them into that match. They passed the, the buck to him really. They didn't take responsibility for it. In fact, later one of the two said that they had concocted a story with their lawyers to shift the blame onto their captain. After initially denying everything, the captain, a deeply committed Christian called Hansi Cronier, stepped up and he acknowledged his guilt. He confessed that despite the huge amounts of money that he earned on the sporting field, he couldn't resist the tempting offers from gambling syndicates. The lure of easy money was too enticing. His desire for ever more and more money led him to swallowing that, that baited hook and the consequences were both career-ending and life-altering. But there was one striking difference between Cronier and his teammates. Where they blamed him, and when they weaseled their way out of taking real responsibility, he recognised the deeper spiritual cause for his actions. And he was, he was ridiculed for it. But despite being ridiculed, he acknowledged that his actions came from a deep-seated love of money and that Satan had made use of and exploited that weakness. That's what he acknowledged. He realised and recognised that Satan made use of that, that weakness, that deep-seated love of money that he had. He was tempted, lured, enticed and hooked by his craving for money. That's just one example of being tempted by, by money. Very, there are many others, I'm sure. But what about sexual temptation, the one sin that so many people focus on in this passage? Well, we just have to look at the story of David and Bathsheba to see that how quickly temptation progresses to sin. David was lounging around on his palace roof when his wandering eye saw a woman bathing. This in, in itself wasn't a sin, but what may have been an accidental glance turned into an intentional one. His gaze and his internal desires conceived a powerful temptation and his plunge from temptation to sin progressed at, at breakneck speed. He inquired about her, he sent for her, he slept with her, knowing that she was someone else's wife. And it didn't end there, for immorality and adultery led to murder. How rapidly did that, that contamination spread and consume? And what's really scary, what's really scary is that this is the man who was a man after God's own heart. If he can crash so badly, aren't you and I in danger too? Yes, brothers and sisters, James' message applies to you and me too. Because we are sinners as well. It's an uncomfortable thought, but seemingly minor transgressions and apparently harmless habits 
can easily snowball into a lifestyle that will lead us away from God. There's very much truth in the saying that we sow a thought and reap an act. We sow an act and reap a habit. We sow a habit and reap a character. We sow a, char- sow a character and we reap a destiny. Our thoughts turns to acts. Our acts become habits. Our habits become part of our character. So what are we to do? What are we to do when we, are, when we are tempted? How are we to respond when we're tempted? What treatment is there for this condition? What's the cure? What will keep us away from being, uh, keep us from being dragged away and, and enticed? Is the possible loss of, of one's reputation within the church a sufficient deterrent? Will the thought of how you'd be shamed if your actions became known, will that be an adequate shield? Will the way that our wives or our husbands, our friends, how they would respond, prevent us from giving in to temptation? Will losing our peace of mind do the trick? Brothers and sisters, some of these things may help at times, but none of them offers sure fire protection. For if we trust in ourselves and not in the things that we can and uh, sorry if we can trust in ourselves and in the things that we do and that we can do we haven't yet grasped where our true help lies where our true hope lies our hope and our help is from the lord who made heavens and earth and when temptations strike our first and our best avenue of defense is to turn to him apart from his grace we are weak Apart from his grace, we will fail. Paul says to the Corinthians, Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. Doesn't Peter also remind us that we are being guarded or kept by God's power? We may be weak, but our almighty God is strong, and we can and we must turn to him rather than to rely on our own strength. Earlier this morning we read how James reminds fellow believers that they need wisdom when they face trials. And this well and truly applies with a trial of temptation, perhaps even more so than with other trials. We need wisdom from the Lord to strengthen us, to keep us from yielding to these temptations that each and every one faces or will face. Wisdom is God's gift for overcoming temptation and for living in obedience to him. It's God's gift for overcoming temptation. And that wisdom is ours. That wisdom is ours if we ask the God who, who so graciously and generally gives without recrimination. Pray for it. Search for it in God's word. Resist temptation with a word of truth. And embrace the magnificent assurance that our faithful God will not let us be tempted beyond our abilities. He will provide the way of escape so that we are able to endure the trial of temptation. Brothers and sisters, enthrone Jesus in your hearts. Let him there subdue all that is unholy, all that is untrue. 
Crown him as your captain. And let the light and the power of his will enfold you in temptation's hour. I don't know what temptations you are facing now or what you may face in future. But I do know this. Because of our broken human nature, we all face temptation. Perhaps the uncertainty of what lies ahead for this congregation in a time of vacancy is tempting you to look for another church instead of making sure you get involved in this church to keep things flowing smoothly. As a parent of married kids, you may be tempted to keep managing their lives for them instead of letting them get on with their own lives. As a married person, your temptation might be to shirk your responsibilities, to leave everything to your spouse because you want more time for yourself. As an employed person, you may be tempted to go along with your with your boss's insistence on celebrating alternative lifestyles instead of standing up for God's view of what is acceptable. As a leader in the church, your temptation may be to want to to have your own way, to get your own way instead of submitting to the wisdom of others. As a student, you may be tempted to copy someone else's work because you're running out of time for for it to finish your assignment. As a young guy, your desire to fit in with your friends may tempt you to start using their disgusting ways of describing women or to to use the same sort of bad language that they use. As a young girl, you may be tempted to succumb to your boyfriend's sexual advances because that's what's expected of you and you don't want to be seen as a prude. As a young adult, you may be tempted to move in with your significant other because your friends seem to be doing it and God hasn't struck them down with lightning. Temptation, friends, is part of our experience in this life. But remember that our Christian maturity isn't indicated by how few times we are tempted, but by how few times we succumb. To that temptation. And to resist that temptation, we need wisdom. Invest in getting to know God better by spending time with Him, by spending time in His Word. Lay hold of the promises of Scripture and fix your eyes on Christ. For if we belong to Him, we can indeed say with the Apostle Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Put off the old self. Put on the new by fixing your eyes on Jesus. As you face the trial of temptation, look unto Jesus. As the word of God dwells richly in your heart, you can triumph through his power. As the mind of Christ lives in you, his love and his power will control what you do and what you say. Beloved in Christ, the cure for temptation is Jesus. Jesus is the source of victory over sin and temptation. 
and through him we can triumph over temptation. That's the glory of the gospel. Then writer Horatio Palmer puts it this way. Do not yield to temptation, for yielding is sin. Each victory will help you some other to win. Fight valiantly onward, evil passions subdue. Look ever to Jesus, he will carry you through. Ask the Saviour to help you, comfort, strengthen and keep you. He is willing to aid you, he will carry you through. He who is our Saviour, our strength will renew. Look ever to Jesus, he will carry you through. Yes, people of God, look ever to Jesus, for he will carry you through. Let's pray. Dear God, as we gather here this morning, there are some who are going through trials, and some of those trials have been going on for a long time. For some, their trials have meant that they could not or did not want to be with us here today. But Lord, even at times like these, we thank you that we can turn to you and to ask you for the wisdom and the strength and the courage to go forward. And Lord, thank you that we can know that you are most generous, most generous in giving wisdom to those who ask for it. Gracious, loving God, help us to keep our eyes focused on you and to cling to your Son, our beloved Jesus. Help us to search for the wisdom that we need in your word and to rest in the sure knowledge that Jesus will carry us through. In his name and for his sake we pray. Amen.